The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ethan Warren. And this is The Great Hunting Caper. Jim Henson had a perpetual issue. He would work for years to get a project moving, be it his experimental films of the 1960s or his early failed attempts to launch a Muppet variety show. But... When they finally say, yes, let's go with it, part of my creative mind is already somewhere else doing something quite different. I think that's the normal pattern. By the time I'm actually producing something, part of me is wanting to do something else. I don't particularly want to make my life go crazy doing several things at the same time, but it always seems to happen that way. Good God, that's like the truest thing I've ever heard. In 1978, with Muppet Show Mania sweeping the globe and Kermit and company on their way to the big screen, 
Jim's eye was caught by the drawings of fantasy illustrator Brian Froud. The two met soon thereafter and began putting their heads together on a potential movie. They didn't begin with character or story, of course, nothing so pedestrian as that. Instead, they began building the world. Later, as the film's unusual development wore on, Jim would explain himself. I'm trying to create this film in a different way, hoping to get all the creative elements going on it for a while before trying things with the script. I guess I've always been most intrigued by what can be done with the visual image. I feel that is what is strongest about the work I do even today, just working with the image, the visual image. So The Dark Crystal is really important to Jim Henson's development as an artist and the direction that he wanted to go in as an artist. Um, something like Dark Crystal looks a lot like Jim's sort of unedited artistic sensibilities. When Jim would sit down and doodle and draw, um, you know, he wasn't drawing Muppets. He was drawing structures and interesting, like a lot of you know architectural lines. So his his natural his natural artistic instinct was the sort of almost beautiful Victorian looking um, temperament, uh, which comes through both in Dark Crystal and really in Labyrinth. But Dark Crystal was one of those projects that Jim, you know, first of all, was going to get to going to get to um, direct it, which was really important to him, but really wanted to world build. And Jim loved the world building in, in the same way George Lucas loves world building. They both they both almost get like sunk down where you, you have to like throw them a rope and pull them out of the world they're building and say you need to get the story moving forward you know george nobody wants to read about tax law and trade wars and things like that and jim you know jim loved building the world and then when it came time to actually building the world on camera again jim loved the world building and people all told me that what was so amazing about the dark crystal is if you walked onto the set the entire set was built the entire set was finished and michael frith even said something like you could walk around behind it and the hallways were still painted. You know, Pixar talks about how they paint the bottom of the drawers. Um, Jim was the same way with Dark Crystal. Every set is actually built. I didn't see the Dark Crystal until probably, at some point in the last decade, I saw the Dark Crystal. I didn't see it when it came out. I think a part of me looked at it and thought it looked weird and scary. And I saw a lot of other movies that I felt were like the Dark Crystal in that era. You know, I remember seeing the movie Legend as a, as a kid whenever that came out, and that's certainly darker and scarier than The Dark Crystal. But there was something about The Dark Crystal that never compelled me to go see it when it came out in the theater. I, there was never a point where I remember asking my mom, can we go see The Dark Crystal? And when I eventually saw it, I was like, oh, this is exactly what I thought. The, like, what I thought it was as a kid, the thing that, you know, and I, I went to see, you know, Labyrinth and many other never-ending story, other things, but something about the Dark Crystal kept me away. And when I saw it, I appreciated it. And there were certain parts that I, I really appreciated, but it was also very slow, um, very few jokes. And it's very clear that this is a guy who has... Um, moved on from uh, puppets making jokes in a in an old old fashioned theater he wants to build worlds he wants to make movies he wants to this he, he has uh, deeper and darker ambitions unfortunately just for me as a viewer um, and I, I had a great appreciation for the the TV series that sort of continued that story but it's sort of like um, the world itself 
um, I think wasn't funny enough for me as a kid. And it was a little scary. I wasn't at, at the age the Dark Crystal came out. I wasn't huge into scary stuff. And I definitely felt like Dark Crystal looked like serious and scary in a way that I was not on board for. Uh, and then as an adult, the I'm not scared by it, but it certainly is serious. And whatever those things are that are sort of like um, marching up the hill for the course of the whole movie and they're sort of chanting while they do it. There are a lot of set, a lot of stuff like that in the movie where it's sort of like, well, this you could have made them go a little faster or filmed it in a way where like we get the idea what these things are pretty quickly. And, you know, but that was he'd already done fast and funny and now he's doing slow and serious. Unfortunately, it just wasn't for me, you know, and, and I say unfortunately just for myself that like. I would have loved nothing more than to have been a, a hardcore Dark Crystal fan, but it just wasn't. I was much more into Labyrinth because Labyrinth was funny. So in the 80s, there is this kind of new uh, framework emerging for the summer blockbuster and honestly just for like the franchise movie after having come off of films like Jaws and, and Star Wars and everything that, that's co sort of coalescing in this moment, I think Dark Crystal is this very unique entry into the dark fantasy genre. I mean, obviously, because there's not a single human being in the cast. I mean, well, they're being performed by humans, but uh, when do you get to see a movie that's not animated where uh, there are no main characters or characters at all who are human? I think that's that's pretty singular, obviously. But also this sort of collective action that is that, that that's going on in the film. Uh, I I really do you know it, it it's it's really easy to appreciate what he's trying to say here. And there's this one scene that I always gravitate towards where uh, they do this, uh, this beam shoots out of the dark crystal and it kind of drains uh, the, the podlings brains. The, the podlings are these like cute little, I, I guess they kind of represent like humans in this, this puppet universe. <laughs> and, and I think, so the, the emperor Skeksis is, is draining this, creature's mind and feeding on its essence narratively that's a really terrifying thing for a kid to see but uh subtextually and it, you know if we look a little bit deeper at that the idea that henson is saying in this really really uh strange and kind of outlandish and, and wonderful vision for uh for a for a summer blockbuster uh, that this group of like billionaire uh, warlords are trying to drain the brains of the common folk and feed on their essence. There's so much in there, you know, you, you could, you can unpack that like as far as you want and you'll get so much from it. And he's saying this in a fuzzy like children's movie. I think there's a reason why something like this never exists again, you know, and, until the Dark Crystal Netflix series. But when you look to the 80s and this dark fantasy movement that's happening, you see a lot of uh, a lot of experiments like this, where I think filmmakers, in 
efforts to recapture what people like Spielberg and, and Lucas were able to accomplish, you know, with Star Wars and Indiana Jones and this, this kind of new formula for a massively, massively profitable uh, movie. Um, all sorts of filmmakers are trying different things. You know, you have John Milius with Conan the Barbarian, which is like a really, really darker, more adult take on, on like the, the fantasy film. And then you have something like this, where it's like, yeah, it's a movie for kids, but uh, do kids have to have just kind of surface level uh, films? Or, or, or can there be something that is kind of frightening and kind of uh, difficult and challenging in, in media for underage people? I think Henson was, was given the kind of like blank check to, to try that out here. And it's so special that we have this because in the framework of the industry today, I don't, I, I really don't think that filmmakers are allowed to experiment like this on such a big scale that, that uh, Henson had with this. This is Chris Lux. You are? Eva Lux. And what grade are you in, Eva? Second. And what movie did we watch the other night? The Dark Crystal. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what The Dark Crystal is about. Like, it's kind of about, like, how, like, the Skeksis, like, they take over and they have, and the last two Gelfling, they have to stop them um, to save Thrall. Yeah. And what does the movie kind of look like? It's like they're puppets, so I'm glad it's not real life. Mm -hmm. And it's and it would be surprising if those were actual costumes. It would yeah. be really surprising. Do they um, look, do they look like puppets or do they look kind of real? They like when you like get into it and like you've been watching it for a while, then it kind of looks like oh my gosh, I kind of think this is like real and like it's actually happening and like, yeah. oh, those are like actors, wow, they're really good at like all the voices and like those costumes are like really realistic. Yeah. Um, what, what's one of the scenes that you remember the most or was like the most interesting? Um, I would say the one where like the Skeksis and the Mystics are like bonding together back into ghosts. Oh, at the very end? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Was that part exciting or scary or both? It's like, it's kind of like magical. Yeah. Yeah. And when they, what did they say when they left? Do you remember what they told the, the Gelfling? They told him about, like, that they cracked the crystal and, like... Yeah. Yeah, that kind of stuff. And once the once the good and the bad parts were back together, they could leave, and then yeah. they, they were in charge of Thra now, right? Yeah. Cool. And they, like, they would just, like, watch over the people. Yeah. So, you watched this before you were in second grade, right? Yeah. But... Do you remember it being... More scary or more exciting, or what did you think of it? Well, when I was little, it was like I was like, "Oh my gosh, the skeletons—they're so creepy!" <laughs> and like, one—I remember that time when we watched it at night, and I was like, 
Yeah, I was in kindergarten, and I and I went to bed, and yeah. I had nightmares about Skeksis eating my Ooh, face. So if you were talking to other kids, you'd probably say, don't watch it in kindergarten. Nope. Maybe wait till you're a little older, right? Yeah, probably wait until you're in, like, first and second grade. Yeah, okay. And what makes the Skeksis so scary? Like, like, if you've seen the scene where, like, um, it's the trial of stone mm-hmm. um like it's kind of like weird when you see chamberlain's body because it's like he looks like an old bird mm-hmm. that has been turned into like a human yeah and their faces are really ugly and do they treat the other people around them okay or not really no no what kind I of bad things like, do they do like they're like they're rude they're like they they take other they, they're stealing, they're yep. like, they're really bad. Yeah. And what did they do to the podlings? They made them bad sleeves. And they drained their... Essence. Yeah. That's really scary, right? Mm. And But it doesn't work as well as Gelfling Essence, does it? No, it no. doesn't. It only works for like a few seconds and then pow, you're old again. Do you think we should ever drink Essence? No. no. <laughs> I don't think so either. Um, also, we don't have the materials. True. Well, Do you wish there were more movies like The Dark Crystal? Yes. Yeah. I want there to be a number two. Yeah. Well, there's not a number two, but there is the show. I know. Do you want to start watching that sometime soon? Yes. Yeah. You sound a little like Chamberlain when you said that. Mm. <laughs> that was a good whimper. Okay. Mm. Um, let's maybe talk for another minute or two about what were some of your favorite animals or creatures? I think my favorite creature was definitely Fizzgig because he's, he's like, he's like, rah, rah, rah. Yeah. And it's funny. What makes him mad or sad? Like, he kind of gets mad when, like, people try to, like, hurt Kira or Jen. Mm-hmm. Or Jen. Yeah. And he got mad at Jen when he first met him. No, he doesn't like to get left behind either, does he? No, he no. does not. He's like, <laughs> And what other animals do you remember? Any of the big ones you remember? remember the land striders? Yeah, land striders. Yeah. What were those big, like, grub-like ones? I forget. Oh, I think the, the nebri, Yeah, right? nebri, nebri. Yeah. They're just kind of slimy looking, right? Yeah, they're just like... And we looked at some pictures together that showed the the land striders, how it was people with stilts on their feet and their hands that were running. So uncomfortable, so uncomfortable. So uncomfortable. So uncomfortable. But it looked really cool, didn't it? I would never be able to stand on that table yeah. and be on stilts. No, I don't think I would either. Ever, 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 ever. They do pretty good movie magic, don't they? Yep. Cool. Very good. All right. Well, why don't we wrap up there and... Yeah. They can go back to the show. Thank you. (laughs) The Dark Crystal is, I think, a really successful experiment in creating an entire mythology and back history and story for, for a world within one movie and creating just enough in the frame of the movie that it implies a lot more outside that frame, whether it is just the creatures you see for a moment or it is that when that the party they go to, when those little dudes are jamming on flutes and drums and the song is super catchy, or uh, 
the the entire ending where the where good and evil combine back into the the original forms, which really blew my mind as a kid. Even as I felt it was unfair that when good and evil combine, their final forms are still pretty good. That I felt like the the Skeksis were underrepresented in the in the final uh, in the final godlike beings that they became. Uh, but there's something about trusting a young audience, and I assume it was meant for an all-ages audience, not just for children, but especially but trusting a young audience to accept that there's a lot going on in this movie. Not all of it is going to be totally spelled out. A lot of it will be spelled out, but not all of it. And you're going to have to pick up things like that the, the moments where one uh, Skeksy gets hurt and an ancient one also hurts you know that the, the, the that when the when the leader of the Skeksis dies the the oldest of the ancient ones also die, you know also dies um and that the difference between a body crumbling apart into pieces after death and a body fade dissolving and kind of fading back into into some kind of spirit essence after death there's so much um that's working on that kind of mythic folklore uh level without constant explanation and it's something that I really loved about it then, I especially love about it now, now that everything has to be explained to the nth degree in movies, and I don't know if I'm allowed to badmouth the Dark Crystal TV show, but I couldn't get very far into it because they were explaining so much stuff. Their the prologue is so long and detailed, and I remember sitting with my wife, and my wife turned to me and she said, I feel like the more they tell me, the less I understand about what's going on in this movie, or in this show. And I was like, yeah, in the movie, it's it's kind of just like... They're good guys and bad guys, and they live in this weird, weird world. You know, uh, it felt like the that everyone involved in the movie did such a good job of resisting the urge to explain, or resisting the urge to say, "Oh, here's another thing we thought of. Let me tell you this, because otherwise you might not know it. We thought of this thing that they could just say, let's let it kind of enrich the the thing that's going on, and how Brian Froud's designs for everything feel so coherent, and they feel like one world, and they feel so different from our usual Muppet aesthetics." but not so, so different that that feeling doesn't still come through. There's still that feeling of uh, imagination and pushing what kind of story and uh, and puppeteering techniques are possible that still fits it well into the Muppet mold. And I'm just so glad that the Disney has not yet put out their, like, the Muppets meet dark crystal uh crossover or something like that you know there's uh, that those they they feel of a they feel like those they are two planets in the same universe but they are planets that are so far away from each other light years and light years apart that they can never actually interact and there's something beautiful about that just like in real life where the other inhabited planets are so far away we'll probably never know about them the story would come though jim's collaborator would not be proud rather it was 16 year old cheryl henson who would help her father find his plot snowed in at a howard johnson's for two days Jim and Cheryl holed up in their room and brainstormed, identifying key narrative components. Two species of character, one good and one evil, ultimately revealed to have been split from one consciousness by the fracturing of an essential... stone? Gem? Something like that. By the time the storm abated, they'd landed on it, and on a working title. The Crystal. Other seeds of the story began to sprout. Jim recalled Lord of the Rings, a project he had once flirted with adapting. He saw a drawing in a children's book depicting a crocodile in Victorian finery, an image that captivated him. Finally, Jim put together a 16-page treatment, told the Muppet Builders to get working on some prototypes, and then brought his treatment to Paramount, asking for $15 million to make the crystal a reality. For reference, that would be like asking for $50 million today. 
The problem was Jim's 16 pages were devoted all but entirely to concept art and descriptions of the world. The story was relegated to a vague half page. Paramount couldn't see it. Jim, as ever, remained sanguine. When you try to get people in this industry to accept a big idea, it usually takes a long time. The crystal, of course, would be renamed the Dark Crystal, and the resulting story is both archetypally simple and borderline impenetrable. In the first Henson film to feature no on-screen human performers at all, we follow Jen, who believes himself to be the last of the elf-adjacent race of Gelflings. Raised by the Uru, a race of lumbering monk-like creatures devoted to obscure ritual, Jen is tasked with a quest, traverse the world of Thra to restore a shard to the cracked dark crystal, an all-powerful gem holding the universe in balance. As he encounters the witch, Agra, and the only other living Gelfling, Kira, Jen must dodge the attacks of the vicious Skeksis, grotesque beaked creatures obsessed with maintaining their iron grip over Thra. In a fairly standard issue example of the hero's journey, Jen and Kira achieve their goal with the restored crystal reuniting the Skeksis and the mystics into a single godlike entity that splintered when the crystal did. With Thra saved, the credits roll. The Dark Crystal, when I was growing up, was my absolute favorite movie. I would watch it over and over again. We taped it off TV because my parents, they would pay for HBO, but they would not pay for factory-produced videotapes. So we taped the Dark Crystal off HBO, and I would watch it over and over and over again. And I was so excited to see a movie where all the characters were monster characters, except for the except for the Gelflings. But I, they, like, they were monstery enough, even though uh, the, the hero always looked a little bit too much like Michael Jackson to me when I was a kid, and it always kind of scared me a little bit. But that was the scariest thing to me. The, the, uh, the, uh, the Skeksis, not scary at all. The, uh, the Gartham, not scary at all. But just the main character's slight resemblance to late-era Michael Jackson threw me off when I was a kid. But to see, when I was a kid, I loved monsters. I didn't like people that much. So I collected He-Man toys as a little kid, only wanted the monsters, didn't want the human characters. And I was always saying, why can't there be a movie where the monsters are the good guys? They're always the bad guys. Or why can't there be a movie with all monsters? And then when I discovered The Dark Crystal, it just felt like my dreams had completely come true. That here's this movie that was all creatures, and you could just live in this very fully realized world and see these creatures and... I loved the Skeksis so much, and the and just watching every scene of theirs, I found so amazing and entertaining. And the sequence where the Skeksis are just eating and feasting, I could have watched that. I could watch two straight hours of just that, of just the Skeksis eating all sorts of gross stuff. And I just wanted to live in that world so badly. And I remember having dreams at night where I was leaving. Uh, Agra, that when she's, when the Gartham are attacking her observatory, uh, like, I would have dreams about running, how, how I would get away from them, you know, how, how I'd run from them, and the, uh, just, it was a, just like a place I wanted to be, like this world, and I didn't like the real world very much when I was a kid, now it's okay, I feel like I've come to a semi-agreement with the real world, that I'll do my thing and it'll do its thing, um, but just, Having that land and having that, uh, I'm glad that they didn't go with the original plan of having it all be in kind of monster alien languages. I think that would have been too far, but having it be as unreal and as strange as it was, but still feel as real and living as it was, was a very exciting thing. And years later, I went to the uh, motion picture, the Academy Motion Picture Museum in LA right after it opened. I've been there a bunch of times since then, and they have a bunch of that Dark Crystal stuff they have one of the mate one of the sexy puppets and they have um 
the like silverware that gets attached to the ends of their fingers. And I was so excited to see that. This is in the same room that like C-3PO is in and R2-D2 and there's like a xenomorph head or whatever. But I was, the most exciting thing to me was seeing that little, this little silverware that attaches to the ends of their fingers. Cause I was, cause that scene was just so important to me as a kid. The scene of just being able to like sit at the dinner table with these horrible creatures and just watch them slurping down rats and just eating gross things and uh, and that the movie made the time for that. That the movie didn't treat that like it was a just a thing to get past as you get to the to the story scenes, but as something to really make a meal out of. Eh? We talked last time about the unusual deal Jim was able to strike with his financier, Lord Lou Grade. In exchange for Jim making the Great Muppet Caper first, Lord Grade would finance whatever the crystal turned out to be. Lord Grade promised Jim $13 million, but as the 70s gave way to the 80s with development still in progress, it became obvious this sum would fail to cover the Dark Crystal's ballooning expenses. Lord Grade was persuaded to increase his investment to $25 million, which would be in the range of $100 million today. Skeptics considered the entire project a quixotic disaster. At the height of his renown, Jim was sinking all his cultural credit into a project even he couldn't seem to articulate. But Jim's belief in the Dark Crystal never wavered. He assembled a team of trusted collaborators, always his preferred way of working, tasking Muppet Show writer David O'Dell with turning his treatment into a screenplay. While the workshop continued building, Jim hired teams of craftspeople from carpenters to jewelers, insisting that each prop from chairs to spoons be built specifically for the world of Thra nothing glimpsed on screen would ever have been seen before. A project that began with a staff of seven soon had a staff of 60. We could never have tried something like the Dark Crystal even a few years earlier because until recently, we didn't have the performers, the puppet builders, the technicians who could handle the problems involved. I think the idea for the Dark Crystal came along at about the time we were ready to handle it, which is basically the way things have happened all my life. So Dark Crystal is, is really important to Jim's development in, as an artist because this is the direction he sort of that he wants to go. This is the direction he wants to explore. Fantasy films to Jim are are magical because you're not tied down by the limitations of of you know short term thinking. Um, you know everything, anything that you want to dream up, you can probably get on screen somehow. And so that's what I think Jim was really anxious to do with the Dark Crystal. So much so, again, that he wanted to make that even before The Great Muppet Caper. But that's where he wanted to go with Dark Crystal. That film was really, really important to him and, and his development as an artist. We'll be right back after this quick break. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Rather than puppeteers, Jim and his team looked to mimes and dancers, bringing in a mime for eight months of training in order to figure out the movements of the film's many bizarre creatures. Not just the Skeksis and Uru, but the menacing Gartham, the majestic Landstriders, and more. To make things more complex, Jim had decided that not only would the creatures' movement be alien, but their languages would be as well. Though the Gelfling protagonists would speak in English, the Skeksis and Mystics would speak in their own invented languages, which would go unsubtitled. The decision baffled Jim's collaborators, but he held strong, believing that the visuals alone could carry the story. We're working with primary images that appear in many stories of folklore and mythology. I like fairy tales very much. I like what they are and what they do. Production on The Dark Crystal began in the spring of 1981. The film had not one director, but two. Jim and Frank shared the director's chair, a distinctly mixed blessing. On the one hand, the two had different sets of skills and priorities, Jim focusing on the technical challenges while Frank focused on performance. Unfortunately, the lack of a clear guiding hand left the crew feeling so confused that a contingent even begged Jim to simply take the reins himself to clarify and streamline the process. Jim refused. Frank would stay. Jim assigned himself the role of Jen, but he struggled to adapt to this new, more realistic style of puppetry. As living creatures, the movements are much more complex and subtle. Like, do you cut your eyes before you turn your head or after? Little things like that, things you normally wouldn't think about. Even with a puppet built specifically for his hand, Jim struggled with proper articulation and with Jen's considerable weight. Finally, the puppet went back to the workshop where it was reconceived so the face could be operated remotely rather than by the thick and heavy cables used originally. Production took six painstaking months, occupying nine Elstree sound stages and spilling out into portions of the back lot. Once the first unit had wrapped, Jim spent the fall overseeing second unit location shoots before heading into the editing room and finally monitoring the recording of the score by Trevor Jones, who created a soundscape blending the ancient and the futuristic from antique woodwinds to synthesizers. Finally, the time had come for test screenings, which confirmed all the skeptics' predictions. Audiences were confused by the long passages of nonsense language, and that frustration was ruinous to the entire experience of the film. Jim had no choice but to relent and redub the Skeksis and Uru in English, which required poor screenwriter David O'Dell to study the tape, running it backwards and forwards to sync up new dialogue with the puppet's mouths. 
Once Jim had caved on the language issue, he found himself pressured to abandon more of his storytelling principles. Since putting up the funds for the Dark Crystal, Lord Lou Grade, Jim's financier on every project since The Muppet Show, had been ousted from his own company and replaced by the notorious corporate raider Robert Holmes Accord. Holmes Accord had no special fondness for Jim, and set about haranguing him to trim the ponderous Uru sequences from the film in order to devote greater focus to the flashier Skeksis material. Jim would have none of it, and rather than haggle with Holmes Accord, he made a radical decision. He offered Holmes Accord $15 million, all his available Muppet revenue, in exchange for all rights to the Dark Crystal. Holmes Accord, no particular patron of the arts, handed the film over without much fuss. Jim's brain trust was appalled by his decision, but Jim harbored no doubts. It's a good deal. After five long years of development, The Dark Crystal was finally ready for release at Christmas 1982. As he had with the Muppet movie, Jim went into a publicity whirlwind, though this time he focused on sci-fi fantasy fans and design nuts. He made a presentation at the World Science Fiction Convention, appeared on the cover of Cinefantastique, and even oversaw a Dark Crystal high fashion collection, which, in the words of The Guardian, quote, does not make a lot of sense, and as a publicity gimmick is probably only marginally useful, end quote. Though anticipation was high for a new Henson Associates project, Jim had to work overtime reminding the public that Kermit and Fozzie would be nowhere to be seen. Miss Piggy is out, screamed the headline for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. Quote, the man who gave the world the Muppets says it is the movie that he wanted. Whether it is the movie anyone else wants remains to be seen. End quote. Oh my God, The Dark Crystal. Oh my God. My, so my friend TJ was obsessed with this movie. So we watched this one a lot and then it scared me and then I didn't watch it for a long time because I was like, it's really scary. And then I rewatched it right before the Netflix uh, reboot came out and I was like, okay, this wasn't as scary as I remembered. Although it is still really scary. Like the, I don't know what they were doing with those puppets. They're terrifying. They're absolutely terrifying. The Skeksis, like they're still scary looking. I don't know. They went into like kids nightmares and we're like, we're gonna make that and then make it talk. It's fantastic. I think I can, I don't know how they convinced anybody to let them make this movie. Honestly, it's so, it's so dark. It's so different than what you expect from, you know, you see Jim Henson and you're like, oh, it'll be, you know, maybe a little bit of uh, suspense and then everything will be fine. And it's like, no, this is just darkness and more darkness. Um, But it fits in nicely with like, that era of you know like legend and lady hawk and like all of those sort of dark medieval fantasy style things that are some of them are medieval some of them are um in time and place that's un, you know unknown mostly what i remember from this one is that uh i'm still scared of it i don't understand how they built these puppets i think there's people in the puppets which is what made it even scarier because it's like you could imagine them like showing up at your house and I I don't know. The Skeksis are so scary. Um, but the, the, the voice cast also in this one is really, really interesting because they, um, the, they create these characters that feel really feel storybook in a way that was, I think unique for me as a, as a, as a kid and watching it as an adult, sets it apart because they're not um, it's not like stunt voice casting which uh, which is obviously what the Netflix show did where it's hard to separate the actor from the the creature 
Whereas in this original one, like, I don't know any of these actors, you know, they're professional voice actors. So they really create characters and um, you really get sucked into the world in a way that uh, a lot of the like fantasy films from this era don't allow because of the, the, the actors like you have Michelle Pfeiffer and things like that. And you kind of have you bring an expectation or like Tom Cruise in Legend, even though it was pre star Tom Cruise, you're, he's still you watch it now and you're like, oh, that's Tom Cruise. And it kind of detracts a little bit, whereas you can go back into the Dark Crystal and you're just like, what is happening? And is it for kids? I still don't know. I really still don't know. Like, who are they making this movie for? I guess nerds. But that's, you know, nerds need movies too. 1982 uh, Dark Crystal is a vision for a children's fantasy film that is truly, uh, uh, I guess demented and insane by today's standards um the quote that i always think about when with henson and and with dark crystal is that his intention was to get back to the darkness of the original Grimm's fairy tales but especially this this notion that he believed that it was unhealthy for children to never be afraid and i find that so fascinating from the guy that created the muppets but also, uh, as you know, um, I, uh, when this podcast comes out, I will be a father, and I'm I'm going <laughs> going to be a father soon, at the time of this recording. And I've been thinking a lot about how uh, the the idea of children not being afraid of their media, and if there's any sort of uh, usefulness to something like Dark Crystal that presents itself as a fuzzy Muppets film, but actually has some really, really dark and serious sentiments. I didn't see The Dark Crystal until recently. And when I put it on, you know, we I got this, you know, the, the most recent, you know, anniversary edition, you know, 4K Blu-ray. And man, I was just completely bowled over by this thing. It's, it's just a... It's the kind of movie you watch it and you just spend half the film asking yourself, how on earth does this exist? How did he get away with doing this? I mean, I I now know that, you know, he had been wanting to do it for for years and years and sort of kept having to make more Muppet films. But the Muppet films he makes give him enough cultural cachet that he is finally allowed to make this extraordinary, you know, mystical uh you know magical thing about the sort of nature of good and evil and the duality of the human spirit and the way he's able to construct you know not just all these individual characters but this entire world and it builds an entire mythology around them it just stands to me as this kind of really singular film that feels like it shouldn't be allowed to exist in the first place and feels like it could never exist again. Michael Firth had this great great quote where he said, you know, the most magnificent thing about Dark Crystal is that it happened at all. Because it's at a time, it's probably one of the last times you're going to get a film where there are, every effect is practical. Um, everything that you see on screen exists. Um, the only shot in that movie that's an effect, I think, is the thundering and the lightning in the sky. Like that's a that's a that's an effect. For the most part, everything else you see is built. 
Um, there's no CGI. There's no green screen. This is the day before green screens happen. There's no, everything is built and exists. Um, and that, that was one of the things that was really, that's really wonderful about still when you watch to this day is remember everything in that movie is touchable. Um, even to this day, I'll, I'll, I've been to, um, you know, the museum here in Albuquerque and there's actual shards from the dark crystal, uh, on display there because one of the artists who built them was from Santa Fe. Um, so the, the crystal itself was actually built and when they broke it, they made sure they actually built real shards of the crystal that like filmed very well. So everything is really deliberately thought out. I have a lot of enthusiasm for the dark crystal. Um, I watched it a lot when I was the right age, but I've also returned to it a bunch and it has been a fairly foundational text in my understanding of like what fantasy means, I think. Um, and so it's not surprising that other people don't universally want to say nice things about the dark crystal, but I know a lot of people who like sci-fi and fantasy stuff really connect with its obtuse rhythms um, and its almost deliberate frustrations of pacing and plot. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one that I'm, I'm hearing from just about half of the people maybe I talked to, like, I didn't grow, I didn't watch that one until I was an adult. I just skipped mm. it, which is what mm. it was for me. Um, it just never called out to me, even when I loved Labyrinth. Um, I think I, I recognized in reverse uh, the stuff Jim recognized chronologically, which was where's the where's the people? Why isn't it funny? Right. Um, so I, I skipped it and then I watched it as an adult and it's it is spellbinding, captivating. Mm -hmm. Like you, you have to speak in hyperbolic language just to describe the experience of watching the thing. Yeah. But it's also a real drag, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And I think I was really I was perversely fascinated by the Skeksis. Like that was a real hook for me as a child in like the in like the gremlins sense of like I am both uh, utterly repulsed by this and like I, I want it, it becomes one of those weird childhood interests where like I was just I, I was interested in this manifestation of so many anxieties and like evils and this literal manifestation right like watching the dark crystal especially now is just a a symphony of of like hushing out oh my god every frame like it, it it is it's hyperbolic is the only way to approach it in terms of its textures right and nothing like it before nothing like it since because even the tv series exists in a world where the dark crystal exists and so how can you replicate those conditions what a strange relic that tv show it is a relic by now um right and i, I don't that's a, that's a story for another podcast probably but like i don't understand they did a lot. They made a bunch of that material, right? They like designed it all. They like built it all. Yeah. And now it's just all in a warehouse in Secaucus. Like, must be. Wow. Because they never even brought it back. Like, presumably the second season would have been the cheap one to make once you have. Uh, oof. But canceled due to crushing lack of interest, apparently. Which is its own interesting comment on the Dark Crystal, too, right? Because even. I mean, I love the Dark Crystal. I didn't need more. It is sort of a frozen in amber upon arrival. Nothing like it before, nothing like it since. I think I only need the Dark Crystal if it's made by Jim Henson. I like. Mm -hmm. I don't. I think it it defines itself in those terms. Like, it it is basically unfathomable what someone else would do with it. 
Yeah, because even he didn't want to do that much with it. He just wanted him and Brian Froud to conjure a world, and then mm-hmm. uh, I guess something else has to happen in the world. Yeah, it exists between like uh, film as workshop and film as theme park, and both of those terms can sound really derogatory. But like, it is sort of meant to be this like thing you are placed in and just sort of move through are moved through but does not play by so many of the helpful rules of drama for the most part the dark crystal was not the movie critics wanted both positive and negative reviews criticized the storytelling which was in vincent canby's estimation quote without any narrative drive whatsoever end quote with the only point up for debate being whether the technical mastery on display was enough to earn a positive notice as Richard Corliss wrote in Time Magazine, quote, the invention is impressive, but there is little indication of the Henson-Oz trademark, a sense of giddy fun, end quote. Florida's St. Petersburg Times offered harsher condemnation, quote, gloomy, dull, sluggishly paced, too dismal for children, and too boring for most grown-ups, end quote. Now, the one thing I will say about it is the poor guy, once the movie came out, because it looked so different. And you have to remember, when this movie comes out in 1982, it is heralded as the film from the mind of Jim Henson. So all of us who hear that name, Jim Henson, we go running down to the theater to watch Dark Crystal and we walk out of there saying, poor Jim, where are the Muppets? Uh, poor Jim Henson got asked this question every single talk show he did at that time in 1982, made the rounds. First question was almost always, where are the Muppets? And Jim was great about it. He would laugh about it and say, they're not there. We're doing something new. But this is Jim trying to grow up, in a manner of speaking. And we, his fans, aren't letting him do it. You know, we want him keeping us back there with the Muppets and where it's safe and warm and fuzzy. And Jim's saying, that's all great. I'll keep doing that. Trust me. Let me stretch out. Let me move on and do something new. Um, You know, you've got to give him credit for that experiment. So it's one of those films that the right people get it. Um, and they get it at the right time. So it finds its audience, um, but it's 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 just one of those, I, th- I think part of the issue is just we as fans in 1982 were not quite ready for it. One of the things I found most striking about it, you know, it, it touches on, on all these different things, or a lot of these themes of sort of, you know, science versus magic and, you know, materialism versus, uh, you know, spirituality. And you have all these like wonderful dualities in there but then sort of like smack dab in the middle you have the uh the podlings you know this 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 group of people that are neither neither mystic nor skexis nor gelfling and i think at the beginning of the film you sort of meant to feel as though the the gelfling you know they're really caught in the middle of this war between the the skexis and the mystics and or not this war but this this you know sort of endless conflict and that's all there and in that classic sort of hero journey sense you you've got jen kind of going on this quest to to reunite these these two you know halves of the world and and heal the dark crystal but really the the podlings so stood out to me because they are in in the sense of a fantasy story which dark crystal is they're the common folk you know they're the actual people that live in this world and they are at least as as Henson pre- presents them, the ones that are living freely in their own community 
are so entirely unbothered by this sort of endless conflict and the, you know, these these conflicting uh, themes and ideas. They're just living their life. They're just, you know, having a party. They've got their own culture. They've got their own language. They've got their own, you know, uh, art forms. And they don't care at all about what's going on. And it's the presence of Jen and his and Kira and their quest and their journey that brings them into the conflict, really, and puts them at risk. And yes, of course, there are some of them who over the years have been captured by the, the Skeksis and who have been, uh, you know, had their brains drained and they've been turned into these, you know, these, these husks. But for the most part, the majority of them seem to be living freely and comfortably. And I think that's just the most kind of amazing thing to sort of almost hide in this grand story is that when we think about fantasy and we, we always sort of think about the the hero that's going on the quest to fight the bad guy you don't spend a ton of time thinking about the people that they're actually defending or like why they're or or, 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 or what the interior lives of those characters are like and i think the the kind of purity and goodness and 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 joy that you find in the muppets he channels all of it into that one sequence with the podlings and it's just a really beautiful moment and a, and a beautiful sort of statement to make uh, in the middle of this really grand, really ornate, really well-developed uh, fantasy world. So Dark Crystal, made by the Henson Company, and on the surface appears to be this uh, kind of, you know, traditional uh, moral, like, fable about a uh, an elvish kind of race called called the Gelflings um, rising up to uh, save their kingdom from these evil warlords called the Skeksis. So that's like, you know, surface level reading of Dark Crystal. You can watch that as a kid and be like, this is cool. But what I think is so special about this film is if you go any deeper than the surface of this, you're going to get all of this, uh, uh, all of this kind of quietly radical stuff. Like just, you know, top level reading, the Skeksis are a group of like vile, repulsive, uh, uh, like rich, uh, like, I mean, billionaire, like <laughs> nightmare creatures who control the world. And not only do they, you know, fight for domination of this kingdom, but also they uh, are terrible to each other and they're disgusting like creatures. They're, it, there's this great sequence when all of them are sitting around eating this like, this, just this like repulsive food and stuffing their faces with like beetles and all this shit and it's, it's so gross. And I think, you know, knowing what I know about Henson and this kind of, you know, hippie sentiment and his his artistic vision for a, uh, a, a better form of, of media for children and, and more broadly, I, I really uh, have to imagine that like he's making some kind of radical statements here about uh, the state of, you know, the media in 1982. And, and I think that extends to today when, you know, such a, f a small group of people control so much. Uh, it's just so kind of, there's, there's a real cognitive dissonance in seeing these sort of radical statements uh, being said 
by uh, fluffy little creatures like the, you know, the always perfect Fizzgig. We love him. I remember those original posters, advertisements in the in the newspaper uh, saying that this movie was coming. And I remember my dad very patiently taking me to see the the movie at the theater, and, and I don't think he liked it at all. It was not the Muppets. You know, it was extremely dark and strange and scary. But I was growing up in such a sheltered community where everyone was so focused on not troubling the children that I had this powerful appetite to be frightened. And I could tell from watching the evening news that the world out there could be really scary. And I needed ways to process that, ways to think about that, ways to imagine engaging with the dangers of the world. So I was I, I was hungry for scary movies in a way that probably alarmed my parents. Um, the Dark Crystal was just what I needed. It uh, was a story I recognized about a hero, um, um, about heroes putting their lives on the line for the greater good, um, modeling for us the corrupting nature of power. But there was also something about the story of the Dark Crystal that caught me off guard. And that was that a lot of the hero stories I grew up with were about the hero learning to destroy the villain. Villain, bad, must destroy. And what happens at the end of the Dark Crystal is not that. What happens at the end of the Dark Crystal is a reconciliation of all things. And I remember in my religious community, voices condemning that movie the way they were also condemning The Empire Strikes Back as uh, the occult. This, this, These are subversive and dangerous stories because they suggest that good and evil are equal and that they are all part of the same thing. And I remember watching The Dark Crystal and thinking, that's not the story I'm getting here. I'm not getting a story that says good and evil are the same thing. There's no difference. I'm getting a strong sense that evil is, is to be resisted and we want a good world. But eventually I started arguing back. What I see in The Dark Crystal is not um, some kind of some idea that says good and evil are equal. What I see is that good does not seek to erase those who are doing evil. Good reconciles all things into a whole again. Evil by nature is destructive, wants to take things apart. Good by nature wants to uh, reconcile things. And that was another point where I started seeing that the teachings of Jesus that were so central to the churches I grew up in seemed to be in conflict with what a lot of people in those churches were saying. They were very fixated on enemies and um you know onward christian soldiers we need to destroy those who are our enemies but i kept hearing jesus say you're supposed to love your enemies you're supposed to seek what is best for them and the dark crystal reconciles a broken world back into a whole world that is ultimately beautiful and so in some ways i look at the dark crystal as a movie that showed me that the kingdom of god jesus was talking about this ideal of a healed, whole, loving world rejects the binary view of the world that that, that reduces everything to us versus them. Um, so 
I, I got that from what Henson and Lucas were doing. And so that, that movie is very, very important to me. I have the, the original movie poster framed over my desk in my office at, at the university. Um, but it also got me making more and more elaborate puppets so that pretty soon I was doing my own version of The Dark Crystal as a puppet show for the neighbor kids. <laughs> I think that would inevitably play a part in becoming a fantasy novelist, um, which is where all of these passions eventually led me. So. Yet despite these warnings, audiences turned out, and the film grossed $60 million on Jim's $15 million gamble. At least financially, half a decade of Henson-esque cockeyed optimism had paid off but Jim was not finished. A few months earlier, after a disheartening test screening, Jim had laughed as he tumbled into a limousine alongside Brian Froud. The next one will be so much better. But first, next week on The Great Henson Caper, podcast your cares away, worries for another day. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.